I'll be reading from 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. I'll be reading from the ESV. 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from corruption, that is, in the world, because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours, and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten what he by having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly you will be richly provided for you and there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Once again, we're glad that you're here this evening, and if you'll leave your Bible open there to 2 Peter chapter 1, I will meet you there in just a few moments. We're talking about spiritual growth this evening, and you know, uh, I was a school teacher briefly, but I understand that school teachers give tests for the specific purpose that they can gauge where the students are and how the students have grown. I used to have a physics teacher that would tell me, this, is, this test is not so much about you as about me and about how it is that I'm doing as a teacher. She wanted to make sure that the concepts were coming across, and she wanted to make sure that in our knowledge of physics and how we, uh, how we do certain things and vectors and all those wonderful things that uh, I was gaining the, the material and the information in a way that I ought to. And I always remember that two words that struck fear in my heart more than any others were these words right here, and that is pop quiz. And I wonder sometimes, and I have wondered in the past, why is it that God doesn't give us pop quizzes every now and again? You know, why is there not standardized testing to say, yes, I'm absorbing the material of being a Christian, or no, I'm not absorbing the material of being a Christian? You know, if God were to give us a pop quiz this evening and ask us just simply on the question, all right, here, take a blank sheet of paper, and I want you to write down the steps of salvation with appropriate scriptures that would tell all about somebody how to become a Christian. Could I do that? If he were to say, number two, I want you to write down in the last 30 days how many times you've tried to share the gospel with somebody. When it is that you look at it and say, okay, uh, for point, question number three, let's, let's talk about our worship attendance. Let's talk about our giving. Let's talk about our singing. When I sing, do I sing A enthusiastically? Do I sing B half-heartedly? Do I sing C not at all? I don't open my mouth. How would we do on a pop quiz if we were given questions like that? Because sometimes it is we want to try and gauge our Christianity by those things. And we want to say, if I've got these things mastered, then I've obviously grown some. Therefore, I may not necessarily have to grow anymore. 
I want you to notice as we, as we get started, before we get to Second Peter chapter 1, a couple of faults with this type of thinking, with trying to make the grade. The first fault is, is that we begin to try and define our Christian life by this standard. Where it is that I can just take maybe and cherry pick a few things out of Christianity that I feel like are more important than others. You'll hear some people talk from time to time and ask, well, is this really a salvation issue? Is this going to affect my eternal destiny if I begin to think like this? Is this really anything that I need to know for the final exam? I used to ask that question whenever uh, we would have in school, final exams. Well, okay, is this going to be on the final? I want to know. Because if it's not, I don't necessarily want to study it. And so we begin to try and measure our Christian life by the standard. You'll note that also, if we try and think about it in terms of a pop quiz, we may fall into the trap of believing our works are going to merit our salvation. I've done enough to pass. I've done enough to make the grade so that God owes me salvation. We used to have a saying in college, when you get a C in a class, it's short for see you later. I don't have to take this class again, right? I want to know that I can be a C Christian and make it into heaven because, well, that's kind of the way I want to operate sometimes. We used to go and we used to find uh, uh, the teachers that we felt like were, uh, were easy. And so we'd want to try and take those, uh, those teachers because we knew that it would be a relatively easy grade. You know, the Bible teaches, if nothing else, salvation is by grace through faith. And that grace is a gift. But if I try and think about this in terms of, well, all right, I've, I've, been, I've mastered the key of salvation or the steps of salvation, writing down appropriate scriptures, so therefore I'm done with that aspect of it. I don't have to worry about that anymore. And it becomes a kind of, I'm going to pull up myself up by my own bootstraps and show myself righteous before God. I want you to notice that you begin to try and appeal to the lowest common denominator in our Christian work and our service. I know that nobody would ever ask these questions here, but some have asked in the past and sometimes quite sincerely, is God really going to count Wednesday nights? How much do I have to give? And I understand the background of the question. I want to know what's going to be pleasing to God. But sometimes it comes across to say, I want to do just enough to keep myself from being in God's bad graces. I want to do just enough to where I stay out of the wrath zone. Where's the bottom line that I can do in my Christian work and service that's going to keep me out of trouble? Where's the lowest point that I can serve and be? Without it is that the, I get a knock on the door from the elders saying, hey, we need to talk about some stuff. We begin to try and appeal to the lowest common denominator about our Christian service. I think it also speaks to the fact that if God were to give us pop quizzes like that, our Christian lives would become more about jumping through hoops than it would about sincere, heartfelt Christianity. I had a friend of mine that had a, uh, a grandfather that was lying dying one time. Man was a very, very wealthy man. And uh, the young man that, uh, that was talking to me told me that his family was so busy jumping through hoops because every moment this grandfather would threaten writing them out of the will if they didn't say the right things or do the right things or jump high enough whenever he said jump. And so he had his lawyer on speed dial so that he could just call and say, all right, he's out of the will. I think sometimes we may treat God like that in our Christian service, in our Christian work. That if it is that I, I anger God or I commit this sin, that automatically God's going to cast me out of his grace. 
And then I've got to say a prayer and repent back into his grace. Then all of a sudden I commit another sin. I'm out of his grace. I'm in, I'm out, I'm in and out. You know what's going to happen over time is you're going to throw up your hands and say, you know what, I just can't do anything right. I can't please God. That's not the God of the Bible. The Bible tells us that we stay in his grace. We abide in his grace. We walk in the light just as he is in the light. First John chapter one, verses seven through nine. And as my lifestyle is something that pleases God, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but I want you to not leave this point without understanding something about his grace. As we walk in his grace, I know that the blood of Jesus is continually cleansing me from my sins because that's first John chapter one. I think it is also that we begin to compare ourselves with ourselves. I don't know if you ever did this in school, but I certainly did my share of it. You get the papers back from a teacher and you look over at John's paper over here and you say, what'd you get, John? Oh, I got a 89. What'd you get? I got a 97. <laughs> and you know, <laughs> sorry, John, you just need to study a little more. And we begin to look at each other or maybe you look over here and say, what'd you get, Bill? Well, I got a hundred. Your John got an 89, you know, <laughs> and, and <laughs> Instead, you begin to look at yourself and say, you know what, I'm not doing as much as this Christian over here, or I'm not doing as much as her over here, or I sure am doing a whole lot more than this person over here. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 tells us those who compare themselves with themselves are not wise. It does us no good to look around at other Christians and say, well, I'm obviously better than this person, or I'm worse than this person, or I uh, measure myself here, and then try and gauge our spirituality and our Christian life based upon how somebody else is doing in their Christian life. And so what we notice is, is that Christian growth is something that uh, we've got to make room and we've got to make space to understand the redemptive work of Jesus and his sacrifice as the singular motive for everything that we do. If I try and gauge based upon a checklist that I've made myself to say, yes, I'm a good growing Christian or the way that I ought to be or not, then what I've done is I've left out a place for Jesus to say, you know what? This checklist never ends because I'm constantly following God and his will. I want to do what pleases him. And so it's not a checklist. It's me looking at my father's will and saying, that's what I want to do. I want you to understand this also. It's kind of hard to find spiritual growth. It's kind of difficult to define spiritual growth, particularly because we can't point to a singular uh, a standard of growth or a pre-made set of standards or growth landmarks versus time. My kids used to go to a pediatrician when they were very little. And as the pediatrician would take them, he would lay them in the, uh, the scale and measure their weight and record all of that. And then he'd measure their heads and he'd measure their length and all these different tests and things so that he could take it and he could chart it on uh, my child's growth based upon a set of standards. And you say, all right, your kid's in the 105th percentile as far as his head size goes. That's real. And you look and you see uh, and you can measure based upon other people. There's not one of those in Scripture. There's not something in Bible that says, all right, here's a new Christian life. Based upon this, within three months, this new Christian ought to be able to tell somebody the gospel. Within six months, this Christian ought to be trying to share the gospel. Within a year, this, this Christian ought to be leading singing. Within two years or five years, this Christian ought to... There's nothing like that in Scripture. There's no growth landmarks over time. There's nothing wrong with setting goals for growth, realize that, but there's something wrong with trying to impose standards on somebody else, because then we get back in the problem of merit. 
Why is spiritual growth so hard to define? It's hard to define because so much of our growth is dependent upon our environment. Now, I imagine those Christians that obeyed the gospel on Pentecost. And you remember that it was that a lot of them couldn't go home anymore. As Jewish uh, people that came out of Judaism and into Christianity, a lot of their family members had funerals for them because they were no longer a part of that family, that Jewish family. And as those Christians began to live and work and, and, and behave as, as a family, you find that they were breaking bread daily in, in, in every house. They were continuing steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine. I could imagine those Christians growing tremendously in an environment like that. But when you take somebody and you try and talk to them and teach them the gospel, and they're in a home life or a home situation that's less than ideal, Maybe you've got a mother that obeys the gospel and she's got four kids at home. She's not going to have a whole lot of time, perhaps, to sit down and spend with the word of God and growing and developing. Doesn't mean she can't grow, but it just means that circumstances are going to be a little bit different because of environment. I think about this. So much of our growth is dependent upon nourishment. I've got a plant at home. If I feed the plant, I put the plant in sunlight, the plant is probably going to go grow a whole lot better than the plant that sits in the corner of my bedroom and never gets any sunshine, never gets any water. So much of that is dependent upon environment, but it's also about feeding upon the Word of God and nourishing our souls and growing up in the most holy faith. It's all about that. But I want you to know that we can see growth when it's there, but it's also different for each person. It's different for each person because no two of us have the exact same background. No two of us have the exact same set of circumstances that we've come out of. And as we go through our lives, no two of us are going to have the same two exact experiences. Please understand the Bible is going to speak to them all. God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, that chapter that you've got hopefully open in your Bible there in front of you. But it's different for each person. What can we define and what can we say is the definition of spiritual growth? I like this definition probably the best. Spiritual growth means your life grows to reflect the God that you're serving. Spiritual growth means your life reflects what God is like. We grow in godliness. What does that mean? It means as I keep my mind and my heart focused on who God is, I'm going to realize my heart and my life are going to be changed to be more like who God is. The Bible tells us in passages like Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And I note that every single one of those nine characteristics is about the person and personality of God. You want the fruit of the Spirit growing in your life. You know what you're doing. You're growing in godliness, God-likeness. That's spiritual growth. That my life rose to reflect that I'm a person growing more loving, growing more joyful, growing more kind and more good and more self-controlled and more persevering and more faithful. All of those wonderful things. That's spiritual growth. So, in a word, what could we say? Spiritual growth is Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. Note a couple of things from the chapter that you've got open there in front of you, please. Spiritual growth is, from 2 Peter chapter 1, we can say that it's attainable. 
It's attainable. Look at what he says there, beginning in verses 2 through 4. Grace to you and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus, of, uh, Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given us to all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge, there's the word again, of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which you have been giving, uh, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world, through lust. What did Jesus come and make available to us? The ability to draw near to the heart of God, to have these exceedingly great and precious promises, to escape the world from the corruption by lust, and to draw near and be partakers of the divine nature. You can, I can, through the blood of Jesus. Spiritual growth is attainable. Note, secondly, that it is expected. Because, verse 5, but also for this very reason. Which reason? I believe the reason that he just mentions. Here's the preciousness of the gift that you've been given in salvation. For this very reason, he says, I want you to add. Draw an exclamation point after the word add if you write it in your Bible. That is the very first of what we call imperatives. You want to know what the Bible wants you to do. The imperatives say, let's put an exclamation point on it. Let's draw it in bold letters to say, do this. That's the first one in 1 Peter. Only seven in the entire book. Or excuse me, 2 Peter. Only seven in the entire book. I want you for this very reason, because spiritual growth is attainable, I want you to add to your faith. The word add, interesting word in Greek. It is the word that we get our word chorus from. It's the Greek word choros. I was in a musical in college. It was The Music Man, one of my all-time absolute favorites. If you've never seen it, uh, get the old one with Robert Preston. I think that's what his name is. It's, it's great. But there's a scene in there, and I was part of the barbershop quartet, the, uh, the school board. And as I was, well, I was the bass, believe it or not. And as I was there in the uh, in school board, and of course, Professor Harold Hill comes up and he's trying to escape out of, out of getting in trouble. And he comes up and he talks to uh, the, the guys and he says, I can't believe what I'm hearing. He's hearing this, this quartet. He says, you, sir, say ice cream. And I say, well, ice cream, but I don't sing it. Well, no, 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 I just want you to sustain the speech. And so you say, ice cream. And then he has the, the tenor and ice cream, ice cream, ice cream. And for too long, you've got a barbershop quartet going. That's the word here. Add to your faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance. And you've got this beautiful harmony of these things being added all the way up based upon your faith. From the very bottom all the way to the very top. And note what's there at the very top at the end of that verse. Brotherly kindness, love. What's the most godly thing that you can say that your life is about? It's about having the nature of everything I do being loving. God is love. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. I have the responsibility. It is an expectation that I take my faith and I add to that faith virtue and virtue and knowledge, knowledge and self-control and self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness, love. If I'm doing those things, if I'm growing in those things, I'm doing what's expected. I'm doing what God has enabled me to do. And note that it is absolutely evident. He that does those things, verse 8, 
For if these things are yours and abound, you will be either neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent. That's the second imperative. Diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you'll never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, what he's telling us here in this passage is that if we're growing the way that we ought to, we're adding to our faith uh, all those things that he mentioned there, verses 5 and 6, if we're doing that, it's not that we're going to skate into heaven by the skin of our teeth, but it is that there's going to be an entrance that's abundantly supplied. I don't want to skate into heaven by the skin of my teeth. I want to grow the way Jesus wants me to grow every single day of my life because that's my Christian responsibility. God made it available. It's expected, but it's going to be evident in my life that I'm following the right things. That's who we are. That's the responsibility we have. So quickly as we finish, what are some spiritual growth goals that God wants for us and for our lives? What does he want for us to set as our spiritual growth goals. Number one, God says grow over time. Flip over if you're still there in 2 Peter to chapter 3 and verse 18. Grow! Exclamation point. That's another imperative. Grow! It's interesting to me that after out of only seven imperatives in the entire book, it's almost bookended. The very first one there in verse 5, add, talks about growth. The very last one, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The very last thing that he says has to do with you and I, over time, growing to be more Christ-like. It's not optional, brothers and sisters. It's not something that we can turn off. It's not something that we can just take a break from because every single day in our lives, whether we're working or not, whether we've got a family at home or not, whether it is that our spouse is at home or not, we have a responsibility to move in this direction, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God says, over time, when do I stop? Well, last week's lesson dealt with that. Be faithful till... Death, Revelation 2, we have a responsibility to grow over time. God wants us to grow beyond being children. You ever know any adult people who are basically children? I'm not talking about mentally, I'm talking about spiritually. People that have at their heart very selfish desires and very, uh, uh, very um, um, self-centeredness. Bible tells us that we need to grow beyond being children. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Bible tells us that as newborn babes, we desire the sincere milk of the word that we may grow thereby. Ephesians chapter 4, talking about the church altogether, a beautiful church of Christ in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning verse 11, that he talks about saying that we need to no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You know, there got to come a time where it is that as the church... The purpose for God giving the apostles and prophets and teachers and all those things there in Ephesians 4 verse 11 was so that we could develop deep roots so that we wouldn't be moved whenever it is that different doctrines come along. We know exactly what the Bible teaches and we're not swayed by those things as opposed to the picture of a child sitting there in a boat in the middle of a rocking storm just going here and there and here and there and being unsettled and being unsure 
God says, I want you to be more like that Psalm 1 person. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water. That tree's not going anywhere. That tree's going to stay right where it is. God wants us to grow to be able to teach others. The Hebrews writer in the middle of his epistle has to stop what he's doing and has to stop his train of thought and has to write to these people and saying, for by this time you ought to be teachers. You need somebody to have to go back again and teach you the elementary, the fundamental things, all of these things that we should have left behind so that we were growing the way we ought to. Instead, it is that we just become children because we have to be taught again and again and again and again. When comes the time where it is that we stop looking so much at those things and begin to grow towards maturity? You ought to be teachers, but you have need that somebody's going to come and try and teach you again these things. Now, please understand, he's not saying that everybody needs to become a teacher. However, being a teacher would be a great growth goal for anybody to set. James chapter 3 would talk more about that, to talk about a person who uh, let not be, uh, there be many of teachers, knowing that uh, we will receive the greater condemnation. Why? Because he's going to talk about the tongue. The instrument of our teaching becomes the most difficult aspect of our lives to control. And he says a person that's able to control his tongue is mature. He's a perfect man. What are we talking about? We're talking about spiritual growth. However, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, the things that you've heard from me, commit those to faithful men who may be able to teach others also. If it is that I've never exercised myself to be able to try and tell somebody the gospel or be able to try and sit down and teach an adult Bible class or try and tell somebody something about the spiritual nature of God, maybe that would be a great growth goal for me to set because it seems like it's something that the Lord wants us to think about and wants us to set. God wants us to grow to be mature and godly Christians, to be mature, godly people. Philippians 2 verse 15 says, you need to do all things without complaining and disputing, becoming blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation. The Bible tells us that we shouldn't be children in understanding, but in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 20. Are you a more mature person than you were when you first obeyed the gospel? Has Jesus, has Christ's likeness as your singular goal made a difference in your life? It ought to. It ought to if we're growing the way that we ought to. We need to grow in our desire to glorify God in everything we do, in everything we say, in everything we think. Therefore, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, our life becomes about waking up first thing in the morning, being renewed in our minds, and thinking about the God that we serve as our first thought in our day. And as you go out this evening, and as you lay down your head at night, and as you wake up in the first thing in the morning, a great thought to have in order to grow is, how can I best glorify God today? How can I best do the will of God so that God has seen my life today? How can I be more like Jesus today? Because I want my light to shine. We sing with our little children sometimes, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. All over Rosenberg, I'm going to let it shine. 
know, that light is not yours per se, but it's the light of a people that, just like the moon, spend time in the sunlight. Your light is a reflected light. And based upon your relationship with the sun, literally, metaphorically, based upon your relationship with the sun, people are going to see and glorify God based upon you trying to grow to be like the Savior. That's our responsibility. That's our high calling of our lives. That's what we have the responsibility to do is in everything I do and say and think, I want to be more like Jesus. God bless you this week. Let's stand and sing our invitation song.